actually going to dive back into the book of Revelation this morning, just when you thought we were done for a little bit, taking a little bit of break. Uh, we're going to dive back in. And uh, actually, boy, you could look at it as we're going to preview a little bit of what's yet to come. I'm going to introduce you to a few characters that you'll have looked forward to uh, learning more about in the fall. Uh, but here's part of the reason why we're going to do that. In the, over the summer, right, we're taking a break uh, through Revelation, and we're going to do a little bit of what we did last summer as well, too. And we're going to look at just particular issues and questions, uh, topics, conversations that people are having in relation to faith, or hard and difficult questions that people ask in relation to Christianity, or maybe even our barriers to a faith or entrusting their lives to Jesus Christ, right? which is very similar to what we did last year. We did the same thing. We looked at similar questions. Uh, and part of the reason I'm going to do it again is I just think it is very important for followers of Jesus to be just very familiar with these questions that people are asking and to know how to engage that and to have those conversations and to enter into those conversations and point people to Jesus uh, through them or in them. Uh, it's it's Peter who writes to the church, you know, always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have within you. And part of that in today's world means being able not just to talk about Jesus, but to know the reasons why we have confidence in the hope that he provides and how to converse about that and share that with others, which is all that the book of Revelation calls us to do, right? It's to be faithful ambassadors for the kingdom, faithful witnesses to the goodness, the glory, and the love of Christ. And so we're going to spend the summer just talking about how Jesus meets us, broader culture, and some of the deep longings and questions that people have, conversations that they're having. So the original plan was that Mark was going to take, <coughs> Pastor Mark was going to take today, preach about spiritual gifts from the book of Ephesians, almost as a charge to our new members and to us. Uh, but we decided we're going to put that off to next week and strike while the iron is hot. One, in the book of Revelation. But then two, probably, you know, you know, the issue that everybody is talking about on a cultural level these days, right on cue, on the heels of incidents of mass violence, is everybody starts talking about guns. Everybody starts talking about gun control and everybody starts to talk about, you know, what makes our streets more safe and more just. Is it more guns or less guns or whatever? And so if everybody else is talking about it, why, why, why wouldn't we? So we're going to talk about that today, and we're going to talk about it from the book of Revelation. Now, and as we do this, okay, even before we get anywhere into this conversation, I want to be explicitly clear, so please do not miss this. If you're zoning out or looking at the birds, zoom in uh, for this moment right here. I want to be very clear. My intention this morning is not to answer the question or solve the debate on whether there should be more or less gun control, okay? Honestly, with full sincerity, I don't have a fully thought out conclusion on that matter. I've listened to a couple of debates over this past week on the very issue, and it seems to me like there are valid, very valid points on both sides, and there are certainly things said and shared on both sides that make no sense to me whatsoever, right? And I will fully admit that I do not have a well-informed perspective even on what actually would make our streets more safe, more just, more guns or less, right? So I'm not going to go down that road. My interest this morning is in the way we talk about the issue, right? Again, not so concerned where you come out on the issue. My interest is in the way that we have the conversation and how we talk when we talk about this issue. 
Sometimes it feels to me when I'm listening to Christians, and I have nobody in specific in mind here, but when I'm listening to Christians talk about this issue, I can't really tell which kingdom they're being more influenced by, the kingdom of the world or the kingdom of Christ. Or I can't really tell which kingdom they're more in love with or which kingdom they have deeper allegiance to, the kingdom of the world or the kingdom of Christ. Again, just in their conversation. And so my interest is this morning to talk about some upper-level themes, bigger themes, that I would love to see just being a part of our conversation. Okay? So that's the first and perhaps most important caveat. Uh, Second caveat here, uh, I find as a general principle in life, if ever you are given the opportunity to blame something on Mike Norquist, take it. (laughs) So Mike Norquist came into my office this week, and at one point, you know, we were talking a little bit about Revelation. He said, you know, I don't think either that the point of the text in Revelation 11, 10 and 11, or the point you were trying to make from the text, that you did it as well as you could. Right? And he was encouraging me when we come back around the Revelation to press those points a little bit harder. And that stuck in the gut a little bit, partly because it's such a powerful point in the book of Revelation. And so I left from that, well, don't a little bit unease. And so I'm very thankful. Actually, this issue gives me an opportunity to come back and to circle back around on one of the key issues and key theological points that's being made in the first season, as we talk about it, of the book of Revelation. I'll say if at the end of the day of this you're upset with anything that's been said here, please submit your request to MikeMarquis at gmail.com and he'll be happy. Actually, I don't know if that's his email address or not, so (laughs) send it to me and I'll make sure it gets to Mike. (laughs) Okay. (coughs) Third little caveat uh, this morning is that uh, I readily admit I'm not on social media a whole lot these days and I don't think I've had really too many conversations with any of you all on this particular issue. So I really don't know where all of you stand on the issue, whatever. So whatever you hear from me this morning, please know I have nobody in mind because I have no idea where you guys come from. Again, my interest, or I should say it this way, my assumption would be that if you're having conversations with people outside the church, it's quite possible that in the very near future, this issue would come up in conversation. What do you think about that? What do you think about that? So my interest is painting some bigger pictures that maybe would come into that conversation, however the conversation leads. And lastly, you can tell I'm a little nervous about preaching. <laughs> but lastly, last caveat is I hope you always know too that anytime we're talking about talking about sensitive issues, I'm sharing with you what I feel like the Spirit has convicted me of from His Word. And perhaps no book of the Bible has influenced my whole perspective on politics and political questions and how the Spirit has worked in the book of Revelation in my own heart and life. So I'm just sharing some of that with you this morning. I would love it. If you went home, you're searching the Scriptures, and you think I'm off. Come talk to me, please. Let, let's talk about that. I, I've said numerous times, I'm dead serious. Buy me a cheesesteak. I will talk about anything you want. <laughs> Buy me two of them, and I probably won't have much time to talk. I'll just sit and listen to you. <laughs> so if you, at the end of the day, you think I'm misinformed or I'm wrong, uh, that should just be clear indication that I need more cheesesteaks, and the reason I, I, I am is because I haven't had enough. All right? all right, that's enough caveats. We could spend the whole day talking about caveats. Now I'll invite you to stand, grab your Bibles, and let's open on the book of Revelation. I'm going to read two quick passages for you. Uh, one from chapter 13 in the beginning, and one from the beginning of chapter 17 this morning. All right, so Revelation chapter 13, beginning verse 1. <clears throat> and I saw a beast rising 
out of the sea. With ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns, and blasphemous names on its horns. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. And one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound that was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? And who can fight against it? Now flip over to chapter 17. I'm going to pick it up in verse 3 there. And he, probably one of the angels, carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on that scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon, the great mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw that woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman of the beast with the seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise again from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is yet to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. And thus ends the reading of God's word this morning. And we pray that as he has given us this great gift, that he would also give us his spirit that would open our eyes, open our ears, and open our hearts not to receive it this morning. You may be seated. Okay. All right, here's a question for you. All right, let's say you get up on a Saturday morning, nice day like today, and, and, you, and you get the kids, you get the family, or whoever, you call up some friends and say, come on, we're going to go to the zoo. I want to just go look at some, some great animals. Let's go to a zoo. And you've got a couple options before you, right? You could go into the city, maybe to the Philadelphia Zoo or some other big zoo, you know, in one of the surrounding, you know, areas. Um, and maybe, you know, you hear, Let, let's go up to the Philly Zoo because they've got these expanded <coughs> wild animal exhibits. They've got these expanded exhibits where you can go see lions, bears, not tigers, but leopards, <laughs> right? Or option two is you could go to the Salerno family farm. Where are the Salernos? Well, I don't know. But, right, they're into 4-H. And uh, some of the kids, one of them I know is, is raising sheep. Right? And you can go to the Salerno farm, family farm, and in their backyard you could watch sheep. Or maybe they have like a new little baby lamb that was just born. And you can just watch this little lamb dance and prance around. Where are you going to go? All costs being equal, let's say. Yeah, you know, where, where are you going to choose to go? Go to the, the, the city, the city museum, city zoo, where you got all these, you know, wild animal exhibits, you know, you can see the lions and the bears or whatever. You're going to go to the Salerno family farm and just look at the cute little, cute little lamb. 
And actually, let me clarify that option for you, because if I know my wife, she would say, oh, I'll take the lamb every day. She loves sheep, uh, and she would just love to go watch the little lamb play and maybe pet the little lamb. So let's add to the picture of the lamb that it's got a gaping wound in its neck. And so its head is kind of tilted a little bit off to the side. It's got a little twitch as it walks, and there's blood stains all around, you know, the neck and the torso, you know, the body and whatnot. Uh, maybe by now you can see where I'm sort of going with this. That very question, this question, which enamors you more? Which captivates your attention and fixes your gaze more? Uh, is actually the very quite one of the very questions of the book being posed to the ancient church, right? Which holds your gaze more? Which captures your attention? Which captures your all your marvel? Dare we even say your worship? This beast or a lamb with its mortal wound, blood stains? And, and to maybe just unpack that question, let, let's talk about this beast for a second. First of all, the first thing you need to understand is when we say beast here, you don't want to think like a ghastly, uh, hideous beast, like beauty and the beast type of thing where everybody, oh, shies away from the sight of the beast. No, you want to think like a powerful, impressive beast. Right? This is a beast that has the body of a leopard. It's lightning fast, can just like tear up the savannah, wherever it's going, right? Or it's, it's got the teeth of a lion that just tears apart and devours its prey. It's got the paws of a bear, right? Who can stand up against the paw of a bear if it starts to swing that paw at you or whatever? In other words, you're looking at this. This is an impressive animal. This is an impressive beast, okay? So here's the question. Well, who is this beast? And the simplest way perhaps to get at that without diving too deep into it this morning, we'll get there in the fall, is to say that in the book of Revelation, the story or the drama on one level is this cosmic drama between God and his enemies or between God and Satan. All for, it's war for the admiration, the awe, the worship of men and women, the people that God has created, right? So they're going to war over the worship of these people, these men and women that God has created. And Satan's whole strategy in this book, he doesn't have an original bone in his body, according to the book. All he does is just imitate. He's a counterfeit. He's a fraud. He's a cheap knockoff. And so he's looking at whatever God is doing to draw the worship of the people. And he's like, oh, that's a, that's a great idea. I'm going to make a note of that. I'm going to do that. For instance, right, the God that we worship, the creator God, exists in triune form, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Satan says, oh, yeah, that's, that's, that's a great idea. Let me, let, me, let me try that. And so in the book of Revelation, Satan himself, in a sense, exists in triune form. There's the dragon, Satan himself. Uh, then there is the second person of the Trinity, the beast. And then there's the third, the false prophet. Right? So in one hand, the beast is the second person of this evil, unholy trinity. And there's a lot of similarities between this second person of the trinity and the true second person of the trinity, Jesus Christ. Right, uh, just as God the Father gives all authority to Christ, to the Lamb, to execute his plans and purposes, so the dragon gives all power and authority to the beast to execute his plans and the purposes. And just as people give worship to the Lamb, just like they give worship to the one seated on the throne, so too they give worship to the beast, just like they give worship to the dragon. Uh, if we had time, we could even unpack all the other similarities. Like, for instance, this beast, if you picked it up, it has a mortal wound, just like the lamb himself has a mortal wound. And it's partly the mortal wound and the recovery from that mortal wound that 
gathers God's people in worship of the lamb. Well, just like the beast has a mortal wound. And though he survived this mortal wound, oh, everybody looks at the beast. Wow, isn't that cool? And so they worship the beast as well too. All these similarities. Second person of the Trinity. Unholy Trinity. Symbolic. The other thing about this beast, um, from my perspective, it's no surprise. If you've been tracking with us as we're working through the book of the Revelation, uh, the way I'm working through it, this is not just a symbolic figure that will make his appearance in the end of days at the time, at the end of the time. This beast is past, present, and future, or as the text says, was, is, and is still yet to come. Okay? The beast was lurking on the scene, behind the scenes, when John writes this to the ancient church. The beast is lurking behind the scenes today. And all throughout the history of the church. And the beast will continue to lurk behind the scenes, doing what he does all the way up until his very end. Okay? One more thing I'll share with you about the beast, and you can dive into this deeper. I think it's helpful. Actually, this description of the beast comes directly out of Daniel chapter 7. If you go back and you read Daniel chapter 7, Daniel says, I saw this dream. We're coming up out of the water, just like this beast does. I saw four beasts. A leopard, a bear, a lion, and then one that was undefined. And so with this beast, is basically just a conflation of all those beasts all wrapped up into one. And why that's important is because in the book of Daniel, all those beasts are symbolically equated with what, you know? They're kingdoms, right? And so the the idea here of this beast is the beast is this symbolic entity, this power that lurks behind the kingdoms of the world, past, present, and future, okay? I know that looks sounds a little weird and complicated, and, and we'll, don't worry, we'll talk about that more in the fall, or if you want to have questions, come up and talk to me. But the last thing to say about this beast, which is important, is that his MO, or his whole strategy for wooing the worship of people, is power. Strength, might, right? You pick that up when you see that the dragon gave to him his power and his authority. You pick it up in the description of the beast himself, right? You can't get more powerful creatures than a leopard, than bear paws and lion's teeth, right? It's all about strength and power and might, which is why the people, they fall down in worship and they're gawking over this beast and they're saying, who is like the beast? One of the great ancient refrains from all of scriptures and worship, son of worship to the true living God, they're taking that singing who is like the beast and who can fight against the beast. Okay? And so again, here's the question that is held before the ancient church. Which captivates your all? Which captivates your attention? Which captivates your worship? That beast or this lamb, it's got a mortal wound. Or basically, another way to put the question, which choir are you in? Are you in the earthly choir where everybody's gathered around the beast saying, who's like the beast? Who can fight against the beast? Or are you in the heavenly choirs that are gathered around the lamb saying, worthy is the lamb to receive power and honor and glory for by, for you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people from every tongue, tribe, and nation and made them a kingdom of priests in service to our God. Which choir are you in? 
Or uh, maybe to push the question a little bit deeper, not only which one captures your attention and your awe, which one captures your confidence? And which, which one do you entrust your life to, to lead you into the good life and to defend your life? You can imagine the ancient church saying, well, okay, I guess it can't be the beast because the beast is making war against the saints. I'm one of them, so I shouldn't be aligning myself to the beast in that way. Well, what other options you got for me? Oh, door number two, out walks the little lamb. <laughs> Come on, are you serious? A lamb? You couldn't, you couldn't give me a, a gorilla or an eagle or a shark or something like that? I mean, like, you know, the beast comes from the sea. Anyways, give me a shark, at least something. What, you give me a, are you kidding me? Does this thing have a mortal wound in its neck? <laughs> how, how in the world is this thing going to fight for me in relation to this beast? Let me push that question even a little bit further. <laughs> all right, not only which one captures your awe and which one captures your confidence you entrust your life to, but which one do you follow? Which one are you going to emulate your life after? Which if I knew my Bible and I was the ancient church, I would say, uh, huh, that's a tough question. I know what happens to innocent lambs in the Bible, <laughs> right? Yeah, sure, there's that psalm that says, Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It leads me beside still waters, it quiets my soul. Uh, yeah, but I also know that uh, what else happens to innocent lambs is that they often find themselves strewn out on top of the altar, giving their life for what God is doing redemptively in the lives of his people. That's a tough question. All to say, do you see, do you see the tension that the book is setting up? Right. I think I mentioned to you when we were in chapter four, like that or chapter five, that whole little sequence there where John hears from the angel, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he turns and instead he doesn't see a lion. He sees a lamb. And I said that juxtaposition is one of the key theological points of the entire book. Right. Yes. Jesus is the king, the lion, the king. The undisputed king who will see his purposes come to fruition. But this Jesus executes his kingship always in the manner of a lamb that was slain. Jesus establishes his kingship, his kingdom, as a lamb that was slain. And Jesus is going to consummate and bring his kingdom to full fruition as a slain lamb. Right? And so you can... You can see, or you, can you just put yourself in the minds of the ancient church, how difficult of a question this is, right? For this ancient church that is suffering, starting to suffer, and is soon going to suffer even more at the hands of a beast-backed empire, Rome. And as the church is starting to lose jobs, relationships, standing in the community, starting to maybe lose family members as they're carried off into prison, maybe even starting to lose their lives as they're impaled on stakes in Nero's garden parties, where they're being thrown to the beast, the wild animals, and the Colosseum, all for their faith in Jesus, right? To them, not to us, well, it is to us, but to them first comes the question, in the midst of your suffering, right here, right now, what commands your worship? What commands your confidence? And what commands your obedience? The beast or the lamb? 
This is the problem with the whole Nicolaitans, right? You remember them when John's writing the letters to the churches? The Nicolaitans are coming in and say, yeah, follow the lamb, but it's okay to have a little beast worship in there as well too because it'll go better for you in the end. And and no, the angel, and Jesus is saying, no, get rid of those Nicolaitans. Don't deal with that. Do you give unreserved worship to the lamb? Do you give unreserved confidence? Do you entrust your life unreservedly to the lamb? And do you follow and obey the lamb wherever he goes unreservedly? Let me just press up one, a little bit further. I, I, I introduced you to the harlot, another character in the book, chapter 17, uh, because, well, she's an interesting character. She's going to be an important character. She's decked out in all her fancy robes, glitzy, glamorous. You know, she is the embodiment of wealth, success. She's got her cup, drinking her wine of pleasure, sexual immorality. She's drunk on the blood of the martyrs. In the blood of the saints. In other words, she's living her life however she wants to. And if anybody gets in the way or dares to even question her moral judgments or her moral principles or how she lives her lifestyle, oh, she just consumes them and she's drunk with their blood. Why? Because she's riding on the back of the beast. All this wealth, all this success, all this victory over the saints is because she's riding on the back of the beast. And all of his power and all of his might and all of his strength has secured all this for the harlot. And so she's living it up, riding on the back of this beast. And the other reason she's important is because in the book, she is the antithesis. We'll see this later. She is the antithesis of the bride, the bride of Christ. She is the antithesis of all the faithful and true followers of Jesus. He is the antithesis of all those who don't bow the knee to other idols or other gods and entrust their lives to them, but instead say devoted to follow the lamb wherever he goes. The other reason I'm, I mentioned this passage is because for me, it has one of the more chilling lines in the whole book. When John, the writer, the faithful servant of Jesus, sees the harlot Did you pick it up? He marveled greatly. It's the exact same word as told of the earth dwellers who marvel at the beast and worship the beast. John sees the harlot in all of her glamour and all of her glory riding atop the beast. And he marvels greatly. So much that the angel looks at John and says, John, what are you doing? Let me tell you exactly who this harlot is, which is all to say there is something about the harlot riding atop the beast that is alluring even to the church and even to John's John, a faithful servant. Which is all to say that this question of who do you follow, who do you worship, who do you love and serve, who do you pattern your life after, is no innocent question because even John is tempted to fall in worship of the harlot riding atop this symbol of power and strength and might. Which is all to say, and really here's my simple point this morning. What I would love to see when we talk about gun control, really when we talk about any political issue, I would like to see the tension or this agonizing question This impossible, dare we say, question that's posed to the church infiltrate our conversations a little bit more. And we talk 
not so much just, well, okay, what this means politically and politically what the best question is, but we, we, we think and we wrestle with and we come at what comes out in our conversations is this wrestling from, okay, I am called to this other kingdom where I am called to follow a lamb and worship him and serve him and be obedient to him. And I have to wrestle with that in the midst of this whole conversation. Like, let, let me get specific. Like, sometimes it seems to me like when we talk about this issue or really any political issue, it seems like almost the starting point for these conversations is where the center point or the center aim is, okay, how do I get myself into a position of strength and a position of power and a position of security? Not bad things. And I'm saying that that in and of itself is not evil, wrong, power, strength, security. These are not wrong things. But if that's the center overriding concern that influences the way we talk and think about these issues, something's off. Or sometimes when we talk about this issue or other issues, it seems to me it almost sounds like we are going after harlot life. Not the blood of the saints and all that sexual morality stuff, but a life of comfort, a life of security, a life of wealth and privilege on the backs of something, right? And that's the question. Like, what is going to be the power source on whose back uh, I'm going to best attain to, you know, safety, security, wealth, success, and all that? Like, again... Not that those things are inherently wrong or evil in and of themselves. Though, man, there's a whole lot of caveats in that. But more, the bigger issue, if that's what you're aiming at, if that's what the whole conversation is about, and if that's the goal, uh, something's just a little bit off. Well, let me say it one other way. And maybe this is starting to get to the point that Mike was pushing me on, which I'm glad for. You know, maybe when we talk about, you know, specifically the issue of gun control, right? Um, the, the issue that, the question that inevitably comes up is, okay, yeah, right. Uh, how, do, how do I take, okay, this drama of the book of Revelation, and how do I think about that, talk about that? Also, thinking and talking about that, I, I have, we all have a right to life. And we have a right to survival. And we have a right to defend our life when that life is, is threatened. At least I think, I think we do with Okay, fair conversation. Okay, but, but look, and hear this. Like, this is the issue, I think, in part. Yeah, you, you do have a right to life, and you do have a right to survival, and you do have a right to even defend your, your life and your survival. Okay, that's not in question. The issue is, so did Jesus. Jesus had a right to life. Jesus had a right to survival, and Jesus had a right to call down the armies of heaven when the worldly kingdoms railed against him. But because he was more in love with the will of the Father, because he was more in love with you, and more in love with God's redemptive purposes in your life, he took that right, slapped it on the altar, and said, not my will, but yours be done. And if you pick it up, the thing is, in the book of Revelation, Jesus says, okay, that's how the kingdom was established, and that's the way the kingdom comes to fruition, where my ambassadors, my servants, my people, they take their God-given rights, they slap it on the altar, and they say, not my will, but yours be done. 
And let me be clear about this, because I think Jesus is explicitly clear about it in the book of Revelation. Uh, this beast is going to wage war. Actually, if you keep reading through the verse, through chapter 17, maybe I think it's down when you get down to verse 17. Sorry, verse chapter 13, you get down to verse 7. You'll see very specifically Jesus say, this beast was given permission to wage war against the church and to conquer it. Here's how the story goes. In other words, the beast is going to wage war and is going to conquer the church. War, think back to chapter 11. Right? Again, this is what Mike was pushing on me on, I think. <laughs> think how the drama goes, right? You're coming on the end of the six seals, or the six trumpets, sorry. All which are exposing the depravity of idol worship and the worthlessness of it and the self-destructive nature of idol worship. And yet at the end of it, everybody always says, oh, I don't care. Give me my idols. I want to worship my idols. Give me my demons. I want to worship my demons. And so in the interlude, the angel comes and says, okay, new plan. He gives John a scroll. He says, John, take and eat this scroll. You're going to prophesy what's to come. The scroll is going to taste sweet in the mouth. It's going to be bitter in the stomach as it works its way out. And what is it? What is the unfolding plan? You're going to prophesy that the church is going to stand in the gap. The church is going to give witness to Jesus. And the church is going to be trampled and slain by the beast. This beast. And mind you, God will be faithful to that church. And he will give their victory on the back end of that. But it's this, right? It's this that the people from every tongue, tribe, and nation are going to see. The church's sacrificial witness to the truth and love of Jesus and God's faithfulness to the church. And it's this that then has people from every tongue and tribe and nation, when the other six trumpets failed, stopping and turning and giving glory to God and fearing the living God instead of their cheap knockoff idols. In other words, this is how the story unfolds. You get into chapter 12, it's all throughout the book. Like, why are the book, why are all the Christians keep being referred to as martyrs? Because that's how the story unfolds in the book. Or you get into chapter 12, and the dragon goes to wage war against the saints. And we're told that the church conquers by the blood of the lamb, the death of the lamb, and by their faithful witness sacrificial witness to that lamb. And then the line is, for they love not their life so much, even unto death. That's the story. The story in the book of Revelation is that the kingdom moves from its establishment and death and resurrection of Christ to its full consummation when he comes through a church, through a people who love not their life, even unto death who have rights to life and rights to survival and even rights to defend that life, but they love not that life and they love not that rights, even unto death. In the book of Revelation, the pathway to victory is this church that loves not, or the pathway to victory is loving not your life so much, even unto death. Or the pathway to the good life that experiences the full faithfulness and communion of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is this pathway of a life lived not so much loving your life, even unto death. Again, what would it look like to have that more in our conversation about these things? And at the center point, 
is not so much our security, our comfort, our peace, our wealth, or whatever, or, or not, con- not trusting our guns, or not trusting the government and government regulations, whatever. But at the center of it is this redemptive narrative that, hey, I love the lamb more than anything else. I'm giving my life in service to the lamb more than anything else. And I'm pretty sure that here's how my story goes, that if I'm going to be used of the kingdom, it's because I love not my life even unto death. How does that get into our conversations? How does the world see that Jesus is worth that? Okay, and so just as we close this, can I just back it out of the specific conversation here this morning and just paint it in the the general scheme of life, right? And I'm going to go back to what I said a couple weeks ago. And Mike and I think we were just talking about this before the the service a little bit. It, It More than likely, it seems that you and I, at least the great majority of us, probably I would imagine every one of us, we might never get to that point where we have to choose death over full, final, faithful obedience to Christ. We might. God might be so gracious as to lead us into that for the sake of his kingdom. But certainly right now, it doesn't look like that. I don't imagine that's going to happen today when you go home or tomorrow or throughout the week. And so rather than just talk about this in the purely abstract, can I just say that uh, what I worry about is that tomorrow I'm going to face a small measure of suffering. <laughs> that tomorrow somebody's going to offend me or somebody's going to take something from me or I'm going to feel wounded or whatever. And what I'm worried about is how I'm going to respond in light of that. Because I think I've gotten accustomed to harlot life. Again, not drinking the blood of the saints and all that sort of stuff. But I've gotten accustomed to a life of ease. I've got accustomed to a life of relative security. I don't live my life in fear very often. I've gotten to accustomed to a life of uh, prosperity. I, I, I have most of what I want, as far as I can tell. I've grown accustomed to a life... Uh, yeah, of, of peace where just things are, are okay, right? And so I wonder when tomorrow comes, or maybe this afternoon somebody, somebody comes and takes some of that comfort and prosperity and peace and security away from me or whatever and causes me to feel want or causes me to feel lack or causes me to feel insecure for however long, right? I wonder how I'm going to respond. And I wonder if in that moment the natural impulse of my heart will be, no, go get that stuff back. Because that's what life is. That's what you deserve. That's what you're entitled to. Go get that back. And if you act, need to act like a beast to do that, or if you need to sell out to the beast just a little bit to get all that back, eh, right? And in that moment, when that happens, like I'll be betraying the worth of Jesus and saying that in that moment, when I suffer, and feel a lack, and feel a want. What's more value to me is this beast. He gets me what I want back. I'm going to get on top of his back. And my witness is shot in my whatever relationship I might be in in that moment. That's my fear for me. It's my fear for you. It's my fear for all of us. And I think it's part of the fear of the whole book, right? The church, right, we're not just called to be static worshipers of Jesus. We're called to be his, his witnesses, his ambassadors. And nothing gets in the way of the witness of the church. Nothing gets more in the way of the ambassadorship of the church than harlot life. It's not the beast. It's not the dragon. It's not the false prophet. It's harlot life. 
Right? That's the stuff that John is tempted to worship. He's not tempted to bow down and worship the beast or the dragon or the false prophet. But man, when he sees that harlot riding on top of the beast and all that she has, that's where he's tempted to bow down and worship. And John can be tempted. I know I can be tempted. I know you can be tempted as well, too. So it's good for us to acknowledge that. It's good for us to throw ourselves at the mercy of God to help cure our wayward hearts, and as we sung earlier, to deliver us from the love of all that so that we might taste the goodness of Jesus all the more and really know what it means not to want. And we do that because the world desperately needs to see that. Right? So I encourage you, take advantage of whatever opportunities might come your way. If this conversation comes up, take advantage of it because a world that is foolishly convinced That whatever secures for them power and strength and privilege, that's the ticket. You know what happens to the harlot at the end of the story? The beast devours her and and burns her flesh and eats her. Right? That's what the beast does. Right? Here, come right on my back. It'll be great. And he devours her. Right? And so for a world that is deluded into thinking that on the back of the beast is the way to life, man, they desperately need to see the worth of the lamb. Or for a world that's convinced, no, I got this. I got my life. I have enough power and strength to secure my life the way it needs to be. Man, that, those, that culture needs to see this Jesus whose whole, who says, no, no, you don't. The whole reason I'm here and the whole reason I lay down my life is because you couldn't secure for yourself the good life. Full, rich, resurrection, life, eternal. Right? The world needs to see through the witness of the church, the worth, the glory, and the beauty of this Christ. Which requires for us that we see it, and we delight in the Lamb when we come to worship, when we read the scriptures. It requires that we see the beauty of this Lamb who did not love his own life more than yours and more than your redemption, even unto death. It requires us to see this lamb who is always in the midst of his church, right? This Jesus who throughout the book is always tending the lampstands and the wicks and caring for his church as they suffer, as his witness and as his ambassadors, right? It's this Jesus who said to his disciples when he sent them out, Lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. Or this Jesus who said to his disciples in the upper room, Hey, as you follow me, I will be in you, you will be in me, and the joy of my Father and my joy will be complete in you. And we need to see this lamb, who is also the lion, the undisputed king. And in his undisputed reign, he will lead his people. All those people that he has stamped as his own, he will lead them through adversity, through trial, through the stomping of the beast, out into victory and resurrection life, the good life to the full, all the way to the very end. So our prayer is that we would see him, delight in him, worship him, Follow him wherever he goes. So the world may see that. The world may hear of him. And the world may be delivered to find their life in him. And we pray that God would do this in and through us. Not only in your conversations tomorrow and the next week and whenever, but all the way to the end of the age until the day when he comes again. All in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.